Good morning. My name is Chris, and I am one of the elders and a pastor here at the church, and I've been out of town for the last two weeks, and I wanted to say thank you so much to all of you who've been praying for me. I've been in Kenya uh, for about 12 days and just felt God's grace on the whole trip. It was so, in fact, apparently many of you all were getting sick, and I felt great. A uh, lot of sickness going on around here. Nothing fazed me at all. It was, I didn't even, I mean, I, I didn't experience much jet lag at all going over. That's kind of usual. But even coming back the first few days, I just felt lots of energy. And then apparently y'all stopped praying because jet lag hit me about Wednesday. So I'm just teasing. Uh, I was just blessed by how much favor was on the whole trip. I got to uh, be with our Boy with the Ball Kenya team, Fakisha. Many of us know Frank and Moses who were here for annual conference. Uh, and their team, I got to meet with them, have dinner with them a couple times, go to the walkthrough with them on Saturday. They're, they're tutoring over 100 kids uh, on Saturdays during Love Your City there in Kawangwari, which is a slum right outside of Nairobi. And uh, the team is just full of life and young leadership. It's really exciting to see what God is doing. The Boy With The Ball a global team does a great job of developing and training these leaders and raising them up. And I, I think what's happening in Kenya is just a true testament of God's goodness and the work that is being done. Uh, it, I could speak a lot about that. It was just a rich time. And then I went to Kitali, which was about an eight hour drive, but I get to fly. So it's about an hour flight regionally into Katali, where at Kenya Ministry Training Institute, we had 87 students, which is the largest class they've ever had. And they had students from Uganda, of course, Kenya, and also one student from Sudan. Uh, the opportunities for reaching these leaders, equipping them, and really giving them a good theological foundation by which to be kingdom leaders in their community now is just one of the reasons why I love to go back every year. So uh, it was rich, it was tremendous, great time of teaching and facilitation with them. And then a quick return, and uh, no, nothing's quick, uh, a return back to the States. And I was able to watch the live stream two weeks ago. Brother Curtis did a great job. Unfortunately, I was on the airplane when Jamie spoke last week, but I heard he did a great job. And so I'm just grateful for leaders. We are a leadership team. It's not just one primary leaders. It's a group of elders and leaders that we lead what God has called us to. So to be able to rely upon them and call upon them is just a blessing. So I trust you had a good Thanksgiving. Did you? Yes. Amen. It's good to have you all here this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1, and I will get there in just a few moments. The Russian novelist Dostoevsky said, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared with love in dreams. Love in dreams is greedy for immediate action, rapidly performed and in the sight of all. But active love is a labor and fortitude. And for some people too, perhaps a complete science. You know, the idea of falling in love will certainly stir your heart. Many of us have had that experience. Many of us would like to have that experience. But the act of love will cost you. 
The act of love requires something of you. It requires that you share and that you serve, that you sacrifice and you surrender. And you may even be called upon to suffer to benefit someone else. Love, as we like to say, is not a feeling, it's a choice. Love is something we do, not something we merely feel. I'm grateful for feelings of love. I'm grateful for the love that I have with my wife and that she has for me. I'm grateful for the love that I have for my kids and my grandchildren. I'm grateful for the love that they have towards me. But I increasingly, the older I get, recognize that love goes way beyond or it must go way beyond what I feel. It must be in the arena of what I do. Of course, we see this best in God's love towards us. John, 1 John 4, 9 through 11 describes it very well. And Eugene Peterson's transliteration, the message puts that verse this way. This is the kind of love we're talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. My dear, dear friends, if God loved us like this, we certainly ought to love each other. As the church of Jesus, we have to learn to love like Jesus. It's more than a feeling. It's something we give ourselves to fully, sacrificially, surrendering our own lives, even for the preference and for the needs and for the benefit of others. We can speak with tongues of men and angels. We can prophesy glorious mysteries. We can have faith that will move mountains, give away all our money to the poor, even lay down our lives. But if we don't love, all our effort amounts to nothing. The impact we have is nothing. The legacy we leave behind is nothing. Without love, we are nothing. We are nothing. Hear how annoying that is? <laughs> Paul says, without love, all that we might do for God is nothing more than a clinging gong or a crashing cymbal. It just amounts to a lot of noise, but no action. And I promise I'm not gonna throw this stick at anybody. Before I left for Kenya, we were talking about living like Jesus. We were talking about walking the way he walked, the same way he walked. And I really honestly believe that at the root of walking the way Jesus walked is that we must learn to love the way Jesus loved. And that's why Paul wrote this verse I asked you to turn to in Philippians 2, verse 1, reading out of the NIV this morning. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness in compassion, 
then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Paul's appeal to this church in Philippi, his appeal to all of us is to be like-minded, is to have one spirit, is to have the same kind of love that Jesus has towards us. And then he goes on in verse three and describes what a part of that looks like. Do nothing, he says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but to each of you, but each of you to the interest of the others. You know, one of the problems with always reading or speaking about a verse that is quite commonly understood or familiar is that we can miss the real point of what it's saying. We can, in our own churched minds where we've heard things over and over again, we can think to ourselves, oh, he's talking about love. I know what he's going to talk about. You know, he's already hit 1 Corinthians 13. He's going to talk about Jesus saying a new commandment I've given to you. And we just turn off. Well, we're sitting here. You're being polite to me. You haven't closed your eyes, most of you. But is your attention turned on to what God's word is saying to us? We get so familiar that we just sort of tune it out. We figure we've already got that. We, we've heard that a number of times and we know what that means. We're probably doing it really, really well too. But we forget how completely countercultural, otherworldly this is. When he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Value others above yourselves. Not looking out for your own interests, but looking out for the interest of others. Who does that? Who does that in our general society, in the world at large? One of the most dear, endearing things I've watched this weekend is some of the hostages that have been released from Hamas in the, the Middle East. And I am appreciative of all those that did what they needed to do to have the release of these innocent people. But you know what really touches me is when you see one of the people being gentle, gentle and caring towards one child that may have been held captive. Just the way they are present with them and come up close and maybe even hold their hand if given permission and walk them through this very challenging situation where they are actually setting aside their own interest for the interest of another. Whenever we see that, it is so different because most of the time we don't see that in our world. We just don't see it. What's really sad is a lot of times you don't see it in the church. Something I've always been intrigued by is the, uh, is the way the gospel writers don't gloss over the ambition of the disciples. Uh, you know that this is one of my favorite things to kind of pick at, bring up. These 12 disciples so close to Jesus, you would think they would be quite noble in all of their efforts. And yet the gospels really paint them in a pretty bad light. <laughs> 
We're constantly reading about them deciding and arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Like one time James and John uh, sent their mom to ask Jesus if her two boys could have a favored seat, one on Jesus's left and one on Jesus's right. And I'm sure that the boys are behind all this because they were quick to answer as soon as Jesus said, can they drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, we sure can. You know, all the rest of the disciples, they were mad when they heard this, not because they asked it, but because the other 10 forgot to think about asking it themselves. And then there's that time in Matthew 18 when just as a whole group, they come to Jesus and they said, look, Jesus, just go ahead and level with us. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? I mean, all of them are standing there. I'm sure thinking, you know, I got a one in 12 chance that it's me. So, you know, maybe is a good stance, the good possibility, but what they're really looking for is how do they size up as compared to others? And that's not what Jesus is after. And you know, he probably is shaking his head and he calls a child to himself and positions him in the midst of them. And he says this, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you won't even enter the kingdom of heaven much less be great in it. Now that's my translation. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That's not the answer they were looking for. You know, they thought it might be them. If not them, then probably John, because, you know, Jesus loved him so much. Peter, because he was so boisterous. You know, Matthew, because, you know, he, I don't know why. But it was a child, the child that you're putting in front of us, he's the greatest in the kingdom. But that wasn't the end of it for these guys. You'd think they'd learned their lesson in what probably was their most unseemly time for jockeying for position during the Passover meal as they reclined at the table with their shamefully dirty feet extended out behind them on this seminal night of the kingdom when everything would change and the new covenant would be inaugurated, they're still thinking about who is the greatest in the kingdom on this very night that Jesus would be betrayed. And then suddenly, Jesus stands up and removes his outer garment and takes a, a towel and wraps it around his waist and pours water into a basin and then moves slowly around the circle, washing each of their feet and drying it with the towel. Here they're pondering about their own greatness and their teacher who is the greatest is doing what they never thought to do. The ancient commentary of uh, Hebrew scriptures is called the Midrash. And in it, it is taught that no Hebrew, not even a slave, could be commanded to wash feet. And here is Jesus, God incarnate, stooping to wash the feet of his prideful, power-grabbing, position-seeking disciples. 
And then he says to them in John 13, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. The harsh reality is that we are often more like the ambitious disciples than the feet handling master. We are more concerned in where we stand and what our position is and what influence we might have and what benefit we might get than we are in doing the very thing that Jesus modeled for us. We size up people for what they provide for us, how they can satisfy our needs, how they can give us the advantage that we want. And when we do turn the Lord, it's to get the inside track or to obtain blank checks for our schemes or power for our projects or approval of our ambition. After all, we know it's your kingdom, Jesus. We just like to know where we get to sit. If we're not careful, we're the ones reclining with dirty feet when what Jesus desires is that we wrap ourselves with a towel and start serving like he did. I want to be careful. I don't believe that this is actually attesting to the fact that we should all yank off our shoes and socks and start washing our feet. To which many of us said, oh, thank God. In that day, that was the most menial thing that a person could do. And yet it was not too low for what Jesus would do. My question to us is how do we serve today things that we're not willing to touch because it's beneath us? but the very thing that Jesus would want us to do to show our love towards others. We must love the way that he loved. And that includes action, not just feelings. It includes moving towards people that are unlovely. It means handling things that we wouldn't really other, handle any other way. It means getting dirty, clothing ourselves in a servant's attire, and doing the work that he did. Paul continues in Philippians 2, verse 5 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is quite a beautiful passage. 
really one of my favorites. It's widely known in the church. It's describing the work and the nature of Christ, that his, his existence as in humanity is, never denies the fact that he is fully God. That his equality with God never denies his coexistence in humanity. That he is 100% God and also 100% man all at the same time. It tells us of his obedience to the Father and that he would walk even to death and die upon a cross. But it also tells us of his eventual exaltation where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's a glorious Christological text that really is just beautiful in all aspects. But it's also very practical for us because it gives us instructions on how we are to live our lives, on how we are to walk in the same way, how we're to have the same mind, how we're to have the same love. Paul says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. Which, as we just looked at, is one of service. Jesus repeatedly emphasized that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Paul says Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, seized, clung to for his own advantage. Rather, he saw it as qualifying him for the humble descent he would need to make to save his people. In verse seven, in the NIV, it says, he made himself nothing. And your Bible, the ESV or others have said, he emptied himself. And it comes from the Greek word kaneo, which means to empty. But I don't want you to misunderstand that this is Jesus emptying himself of divine attributes or that he ceased being God. That is not the case. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He emptied himself not by relinquishing divinity, but by taking on humanity, becoming something he was not previously, which required humility and ultimately humiliation. Not, not embarrassment. Humiliation is, is the voluntary condescension to come to earth where the creator of the universe writes himself into the story and subjects himself to the ones he created. How low did he have to stoop to save us? And as such, this negative action of emptying himself is probably better defined as a positive action of the incarnation. That God became flesh and dwelt upon among us. Emmanuel. Tony Evans says, Jesus didn't empty out God and pour in man. 
he emptied all of God into man. I love that. He became God poured into man, the God man. And Dr. Evans goes on to say, when Jesus did something about your sin and mine, he didn't give us the leftovers. He poured all that made him God into man so that man would have all of God. Oh, the beautiful mystery. In every downward step of condescension that the incarnation required, Jesus was pouring out himself. He was emptying himself. He was becoming nothing, not grasping for privilege, but taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness. While humanity is constantly trying to exalt itself, and defend itself, and justify itself. Jesus empties himself for the sake of broken and frail and sinful people. And when Christ goes to the cross to purchase our salvation, he shows us just how far he's willing to empty himself, humbling himself to obedience, even to the death on a cross. Listen, it's vitally important that we get this emptying of himself right in our own thinking because Paul tells us that we're to follow his example, that we too are to be self-emptying people, that we are to pour out and become nothing that others could be benefited and loved and brought into the kingdom. Paul is saying, Jesus is your example. He is your model. He is how you should live. Have his mind in you, not the mind that the world offers you. To have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Be like-minded of the same spirit. Have the same love. You might be thinking, Well, that sounds real great, but it seems a little impossible to me to love like Jesus did. Well, I have to say I agree with you. Apart from him, it is impossible. But as he said, with God, all things are possible. I would honestly say to you that apart from his love for us, we will never be able to love like he loves. It's only by remaining in his love that any of this is possible. That's why Jesus said to his disciples again in John 15, still on this same night when he washed their feet and they were arguing about who's the greatest and his betrayer had gone to sell him with 30 pieces of silver. On the same night, Jesus says to them, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. I want you to notice, he didn't say remain in your love for me. He said remain in my love for you. When we remain in the midst of his love, there is a transformation that occurs that enables us to begin not only seeing it the way he does and thinking about it the way he does, but also loving the way that he does. It's the miracle of him in us, 
Christ in us. No longer us living, but Christ that lives in us. And we, we begin loving as he has loved us. Our own capacity to love is drawn out of his great love for us. And so we must therefore stay there. Remain in his love. Don't linger from it. Don't stray from it. Don't run from it. Run into it. And the more you are in his love, the more you will find yourself loving the way he loved. By the way, there's some encouraging news about those ambitious disciples we talked about earlier. The ones always asking who is the greatest in the kingdom, they remained in his love. They heard his word in John 15. They knew that he loved the father and the father loved him and they knew his love for them and they remained there in that love. And after Jesus had returned to his father, we see them remaining in his love and then emptying themselves just as Jesus had emptied himself. Peter, James, John, all the apostles, they're remaining and they're emptying because that's what Jesus modeled. Even Paul, they set aside selfish ambition and vain conceit. In humility, they valued others more than themselves, not looking to their own interest, but looking to the interest of others. Paul himself, and just a few verses later in Philippians 2.17 says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What might it look like if instead of preserving and protecting and shielding ourselves, we were known as those who actively, consciously empty ourselves, loving the same way Jesus loved, having the same mindset as he did allowing ourselves to be poured out as drink offerings, completely out, all of it, fully consumed for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. Is it a waste? Should we hold back some for ourselves just in case? Keep a little in the take just in case we might need it later? If we don't take care of ourselves, who will? I don't think so. It's not what Jesus led, taught, or did. In fact, he said, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake will get life. When we stand before the Lord on the day of his return, will he find our efforts have been more aligned with Adam, the one who grasped to be like God? Or like Jesus, the one who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. To be his disciples in this world today is no different than it has been over the last 2,000 years. If we seriously want to follow Jesus, 
We must walk the way Jesus walked. We must have the mind of Christ that Jesus modeled. And we must love the way Jesus loved. May the Lord help us do so. Amen. Well, not only am I back, but my beautiful wife is back. Jamie did not have her come up and speak at the end of his service last night. She's glad she didn't want that, so you're okay. But I have her to come and share what's on her heart, and then we'd like to pray for you. I think it's helpful to know that the how of that incredible command is that we remain in his love. That suddenly makes it seem possible. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to read just a few passages beyond where Chris just led us in Philippians 2, um, because I think it confirms that idea that it's the, it's the remaining in him and who he is and his nature that allows us to follow in his footsteps. Um, I'm trying to decide if I'm going to read that in the message I am. So what I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. Better yet, redouble your efforts of responsive obedience. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you, God himself, willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. When we are remaining in him, that conduit works. <laughs> his energy in us, right. willing and doing his good pleasure. Right. And then he flips again back to what we do. And he says, do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. No one-upmanship. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in a polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of the living God. Carry the light-giving message into the night. Wow. Love it. That's so our good. call. That's right. And it's only possible. We can only see it and do it if we remain in his love, yes. so that that energy that holds the Trinity as one, the love of God, would compel and constrain us and, and guide us to the people that we are called to love and how we're called to love them. Yes, absolutely. I would dare say that if we are not being productive, fruitful for the kingdom, or we find ourselves struggling where we don't hear him or he's not close, it is largely because we have not remained in his love. We've not reminded ourselves how much he loves us. We've not extended ourselves asking that his love be increased and grow in our hearts. That if we could remind ourselves, recall to our own hearts how he has loved us, all that he has done for us, we would be surprised at how that would shift the other things that are not going the way we think. We must remain in his love. 
That's the place he's called us to be in his love. We're gonna pray for you. And as we are, if there are things that the Lord is saying and doing in your heart, could I just encourage you to be open to respond to him? Maybe even as we're singing a song momentarily, you'll wanna get up and come to the front to be prayed for. Go to someone that you're walking with in your small group or your close friends with and ask them to pray, to stand with you. Let's respond to what the Lord is saying to us even as we draw near to him. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray first for anyone listening who has not stepped into your love. Yes, that's right. You don't just call us to remain. Your first invitation is to come. Yes. To come into love, to be loved, and to let the power of your love transform the neediness of our lives. So, Father, we give you room to touch any heart with that first invitation today. Yes, Jesus. If you're here and you're not living a life of love, you've not yet benefited from the powerful love of God that rights all the wrongs. I pray that you can say yes to him today. Yes. And Father, for those who've already said yes to you, but may be a bit diminished in their remaining, they may be wobbling a bit in their steadfastness to abide with you. Pray, God, that you would quicken our hearts that we would move quickly when we see that there's a gap between your steps and ours. That we would commit again to living a life of love, both yours in us and flowing out of us. Mm-hmm. That the life we live would not be our own, but it would be Christ in us loving. Christ in us, living to the full. Lord, we confess that all too often we're like the ambitious disciples. We're more concerned about where we stand and what we have and how it will help us than we are preferring another, giving ourselves to someone that is in need. Lord, I pray that you would shift in our hearts and let us become increasingly aware of your love for us and let that be the shift and the motivation in us to change us, God. I pray, Lord, that you will help each person that's sitting here today to hear what your spirit is saying and respond to you. Respond to you in genuineness and authenticity and allow for you to change where we are. In Jesus' name we pray. Let's stand together.